Padlow and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Vikram Talalikar, a specialist in reproductive medicine at London's University College Hospital. He's also an honorary associate professor in women's health at University College. He also runs an incredibly busy menopause and polycystic ovary syndrome clinic at University College Hospital, as well as a menopause clinic in London's prestigious Harley Street. And for those of you who don't know Harley Street, it's classically been known as the home for some of the best medical specialists in Britain. In 2003, Vikram graduated with his medical degrees from Goa Medical College and University in India, and then with a further degree in obstetrics and gynecology from the same institution. He then came to London, where he completed his fellowship at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as his PhD at St. George's University of London in 2016. Vikram has written numerous articles, case reports, and book chapters on reproductive medicine, but his main clinical interests are reproductive endocrinology, polycystic ovary syndrome, recurrent miscarriage, premature ovarian insufficiency, and menopause, some of which we'll be discussing a little later. Vikram loves reading non-fiction and travel and wishes to see most of the world before he dies. Well, let's hope that that's a very long time in the future. This is going to be part one of a two-part chat with Vikram, and I, for one, am really looking forward to it. So, Vikram Talalkar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's my pleasure to be here. Fantastic. I, I have to say Goa is, I've been to India a number of times and I'm fascinated by the country of your birth. And uh, Goa, I haven't visited, but my goodness, it's on my list. It was uh, Portuguese heritage, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, so we had a Portuguese colony for many, many, many years, centuries before we got the independence. I've, I've actually been to a, a restaurant in London, I'm blanking on the name of it, that had Goan food. Yes, there are plenty, actually. Yeah, I love Indian food, but uh, boy, it's, it's on my list. I don't know, I'd have any time for reading, I'd just be too busy eating. So tell us, you know, as an origin story, what inspired you to pursue the career you have pursued in obstetrics and gynecology and with your specific interests? Well, many things. Uh, let's keep it short. So my father was a gynecologist, so that made it relatively easy for me to kind of focus on one field. Um, as I did my general medicine and BBS and then decided what specialty I would take on, I was kind of already helping my father with his work in Goa. And that meant that I kind of really developed interest into women's health more than just obstetrics per se. And then as I did my post-graduation in India and finished my MD in obstetrics gynecology, uh, part of me was always wanting to do more research, which is something I found difficult to do in the settings where I was working. But that took me deeper uh, into the search for a, a research degree into women's health related topics. And I came to London to pursue a PhD and then all that all triggered my interest in reproductive medicine because my PhD was based on a topic related to it. And 10, 15 years later now, here I am, only doing repro -med, reproductive medicine. That's the journey. Well, um, I'm sure your dad would be very proud of all you've achieved. So there, there's been, 
a lot more open discussions around menopause, certainly in the UK recently, coming out from behind the blinds of social discomfort, if you will. So talk to us about perimenopause and menopause. Define and expand, please. The floor is yours, Vikram. Thank you. Um, So in a way, it's very good that menopause has become a, a hot topic right now, especially in the last five to 10 years, as you rightly said. And, and broadly, I see there are kind of two opinions or two sort of groups of people who talk about menopause, one with quite negative connotations and the other with quite a positive message. And I think it's really important um, as we go through the podcast and the questions today is that the message about menopause comes across as a positive one rather than a negative one. Now, menopause has been in sort of highlight or or in a hot topic mode because we know that women are living longer. Uh, The age expectancy, life expectancy in the Western population, and in fact, all over the world is increasing. So women will be spending more than a third of their life in the menopausal post-reproductive phase. Now that's many, many years, 30, 40 years of life. And these can sometimes be the most productive years of a woman's life. And therefore, This phase needs attention so that health outcomes can be optimized. Women can spend these 30, 40 years in the best of their health. And that's when we concentrate on what changes happen when a woman will transition from a reproductive phase to the postmenopausal phase. What can we do in terms of lifestyle, medication, all the other interventions we can think of to make this transition easier and then protect the long-term health and quality of life. Perimenopause is a stage where first changes of menopausal transitions are happening. So for most women, one says that menopause in the Western world happens between ages of 45 to 55. That's a broad range of when natural menopause can happen and periods will stop and some symptoms of lack of hormones will appear. But perimenopause is a phase before that, before the periods completely stop. This is when some of the hormone changes are happening in the background. The estrogen, the progesterone levels are dropping. The ovaries are not making so much hormones. And some symptoms will start appearing besides the periods becoming a bit irregular. And this phase may last for just about a year or two or sometimes even up to 10 years. There's so much individual variation. And so for most women, perimenopause will happen somewhere between 40 to 45 or 35 to 45 years of age. And then, of course, the periods will stop and menopause will happen. Menopause is defined as when you've not had your period for more than a year. So that's like a finality when there are no more periods happening for more than 12 months. And it's always a retrospective diagnosis, so to say, because you should have stopped your periods at least 12 months before you can say that you've now are on the other side of transition, which means you've stopped making hormones altogether. This, however, depends on your ethnicity, your genes, your sociocultural environments. Although I've said most women will have menopause between 45 to 55, say Southeast Asian women or Afro-Caribbean women may have menopause much earlier. So in Asian women, for example, The menopause average age is 46 instead of 51 in the Western population, five years earlier. 
And that can make a huge difference as to what age you go through the hormone changes, what is its impact on your long-term health. And I guess we'll come to that later on in the in the podcast about what happens if you have early or premature menopause. But such differences do exist between ethnicities and everyone's menopause experience tends to be slightly different. So tell us about that. Tell us about ethnic uh, differences. So we know that the number of eggs you're born with, what we call as the egg store or the ovarian reserve, determines when you attain menopause later on in your life. And it's seen that if you belong to certain ethnic groups, for example, Indian origin or Afro-Caribbean origin, you might have menopause somewhere between three to five years earlier. You tend to use up your eggs in the ovaries either faster or that you're born with a smaller store of eggs and you end up using them earlier in life. So you might experience menopause in your early 40s or late 40s rather than early 50s, which is usually the norm for women from Europe or North America. You also find that the symptoms vary. So for example, hot flushes, night sweats, the classical menopausal symptoms we see because of lack of estrogen may be less prominent in Asian women. They'll be much more prominent in Afro-Caribbean women. While Asian women may complain more of joint pains or problems with vaginal symptoms, which may be less in other ethnicities. So variations in symptoms, variations in frequency, severity of symptoms, as well as the age of menopause happens across ethnicities. And the trouble right now is that we have very little research outside of Caucasian populations on how menopause affects women and what are the best strategies, whether it's hormones or non-hormonal strategies, we can apply to improve the long-term health. Partly because we haven't focused on these ethnic minorities, but also because the research participation in these groups has been poor for many historic reasons. And that's something we're going to pick up in the next decade where we have to expand studying menopause in ethnic minorities or socioeconomic groups where we haven't done well so far. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I remember from my experience, both training as a surgeon and practicing, that there were definite ethnic differences in the way people experience pain and disease and react to it. I mean, I, I once took a lot of flack for write, I write articles for the aviation press on health. And I wrote, I used a double entendre on uh, how the male of the species experiences influenza. I called the article Man Flu, given that it was for pilots. That was, a, 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 I thought, quite a clever title. And I basically said, Man Flu is very real. Men are sicker than women when they get the flu. Well, the female pilots who read this sent me, <laughs> sent me some pretty heated uh, letters saying, you've just given my male, you know, my, my husband, my partner, whatever, you've just given him permission to, give, to be even sicker and give me grief. But, you know, there are biological reasons for this. We shouldn't, we should, we shouldn't discuss this thing with, you know, um, in, in, in a negative manner. It's, there must be a reason for it. And if we can work out what the reasons are, that could help many people, right? I mean, and, and are you looking at those sort of things? ethnic differences in the experiential of the experience of menopause. Yes, yes, very much, very much. So I think this is going to be the hot topic research for the few next five, 10 years to come. And, and the mention of men flu reminds me, 
estrogen is such a potent hormone that actually when COVID pandemic happened and we were looking at what happens to menopausal women who are taking HRT, not taking HRT, why does COVID affect men in such a serious way, much more than, say, women? And we were looking into reasons and we actually did a paper on how estrogen could protect against COVID. Yes, and, I remember that. Yes. And it, it, it is fascinating. There is such li- little research about it. But if you look at all the pandemics that have happened, women always tend to do better in terms of morbidity, mortality rates. And that's partly because estrogen, in whatever experimental animal studies we have right now, does seem to have quite significant action against viral infections. No one has explored that as one of the strategies. In fact, there was some uh, news about using an estrogen patch in intensive care for people who were seriously ill with COVID. We do not have any follow-up on what happened with the trial. Did it take place in America? Did, Did we get the results? But the thinking is right, is that there is estrogen protection that's often offered. It's such a vital hormone for women that it could have significant implications for immune system and defense against viral infections. Something for future to uh, kind of research and find out. That's fasc- absolutely fascinating. So you mentioned that uh, postmenopause can be the most productive years of a woman's life. I mean, I can rationalize that that would be because they don't have to deal with <laughs> small children or um and all, all the, the tasks associated with that. But I'm thinking, you know, issues with sexuality, issues with uh, cardiovascular disease, issues with osteoporosis. Tell us how it can be the most productive and tell us about quality of life. Obviously, you can now address a lot of the negative symptoms and we'll come on to those. But tell, tell us more about the social aspects. Okay. So menopause is not the same for two different individuals. Uh, So some women will have minimal or mild symptoms when they go through menopausal transition, be it perimenopause or menopause. So they may have some symptoms, some hot flushes, night sweats, some changes to their mood, some vaginal dryness. And many women tend to cope with these symptoms uh, without having to resort to hormone replacement, for example, by doing some changes to their lifestyle, diet, nutrition, exercise, using over-the-counter medication. So they may have minimal mild symptoms. Others, on the other hand, can have quite severe symptoms, debilitating symptoms that tend to have a significant negative impact on their day-to-day quality of life. Now, how many women will have such significant symptoms? So far, we estimate that almost 80% of all women will have some symptoms, And a third of these, about 30% to 40%, will have significant or severe symptoms. And severe symptoms, of course, you tend to need lifestyle modification, sometimes alternative therapies, non-hormonal medications, or hormone replacement therapy. So it's a kind of a holistic approach, multi-pronged approach to try and get the quality of life to be better. How long do the symptoms last? Again, very variable. You can have some women having symptoms for two to three years and then they disappear and there's not much change between the pre and postmenopausal uh, situation while others may have symptoms for up to 10 or 15 years or even longer so the extreme would be continuing to have symptoms 15 20 years later after menopausal transition most on an average will have symptoms between 5 to 10 years 
And thereafter, somehow the body tends to settle down. The symptoms are lesser. So many women can try and come off any medications or HRT that they are using at that particular point in time. The long-term health impact besides the symptom is mainly we talk about three tissues and we talk about the bones and joints, we talk about the heart and we talk about the impact on the brain and cognition. There is certainly lack or loss of bone density that happens during menopausal transition and postmenopause because during health, during reproductive years, estrogen is the key hormone that makes new bone. It's osteoblastic. And so often you find that as the estrogen levels drop during transition or postmenopause, there is resorption of bone. The bone mineral density starts getting lost. The bone becomes thinner. Now, if you don't have any other risk factors, you're generally very fit and healthy, you're doing right lifestyle, you may not have much impact on your bones after menopause because you are ticking all the other boxes right. But if you have family history, you have other risk factors, you have increased alcohol intake or you're a smoker or you take steroids, then of course any of those risk factors in addition to the loss of bone due to lack of estrogen will increase your risk of osteoporosis and fractures. And that's why we are worried about bones when it comes to menopause and that women take steps to protect their bones. With the heart, estrogen is heart friendly. Women always have lower levels of morbidity, mortality due to heart disease during reproductive years, say until 50, because estrogen protects against bad cholesterol, atherosclerosis, protects against heart disease. And the same trend continues usually for the first 10 to 15 years post-menopause. So estrogen will protect against heart disease. And as the estrogen levels decline, at around 50, 51, and then the 10 years after that, you will find that the risk of heart disease starts catching up with men and it increases so that it almost approaches nearly equal to men in the later uh, years or later decades. And so concentrating on lifestyle, exercise, diet, heart-friendly lifestyle, sleep, stress reduction, all that becomes more important once you're going through menopausal transition and after as compared to before. The impact on cognition, brain, there's not been much research, but whatever there is suggests that there is some adjustment that happens in how the brain functions, how the cognitive pathways change during perimenopause, early menopause. So you certainly find on, on special scans that have been done in studies to look at which parts of the brain are active during transition and how they behave, there are certain changes in neural pathways, uh, the parts of the brain that are active, that happen during early menopause for the first five years or so. And then the brain tends to adapt. It kind of changes the pathways and the neural functions in a way that most women will not have symptoms that may notice in the early stages, such as the brain fogging, kind of not being able to multitask or some memory issues that happen during early menopausal transition they tend to become easier after about five years. And you find that the brain starts adapting in a way that it kind of loses those symptoms and comes back to where it was before menopause. Now, we have a long way to go to understand the impact of estrogen lack during menopause on brain better. So there are studies happening right now 
to understand whether estrogen could be one of the factors that could help us slow down cognitive decline in later life. We don't have evidence which is conclusive, but it could be one of the factors that could play an important role in future when it comes to defense against uh, late cognitive decline. It's, it's fascinating. Um, I know that you've been recognized as a specialist in this field by the British Menopause Society. What do general practitioners and other specialist doctors need to understand about the field? I mean, a lot of this is, is new to me, but what, what do you as a specialist need to teach the rest of us? Well, um, so I think the GPs have been at the receiving end of a lot of criticism lately. I hear a lot about GPs not being helpful with regards to menopause consultations. They don't know about HRT. They're not willing to give HRT because of some of the traditional studies in, say, 2000, 2003, that were uh, the WHI trial, for example, which brought a lot of negative press for HRT. Um, to some extent, I feel for GPs, because actually there has been so much more that's happened in the field of menopause especially with the recent evidence, the new trials, the safety of modern transdermal HRT, that it sometimes is unfair to criticize GPs that they're not being helpful. At the same time, I think there's a long way to go that we provide enough support and resources and education to GPs across the, the country. And when I say GPs, it also means non-women's health specialists. So I think we are lagging behind in terms of providing enough education, enough support and resources with regards to what menopause can do, uh, what HRT can do to reverse that, who will need HRT, who should take it, what are the benefits risk. The, the BMS, the British Menopause Society and the FSRH, the Faculty for Sexual Reproductive Health, are two main organizations right now in the UK who are trying to educate GPs for trying to educate specialists and actually create more and more menopause specialists across the country. That process is slow. It's not really up to mark right now in terms of speed. But as we train more and more specialists and create more trainers, we will start seeing the results that the non-women's health specialists as well as the GPs will be able to complete some sort of modules or resources on this topic in near future without having to spend a lot of time to update themselves with what is the latest in the field. Not everyone needs to be menopause specialist, of course. Most women will have straightforward menopause symptoms, may choose HRT or lifestyle options, and the GPs or non-women's health specialists should be easily be able to discuss these and offer these to their patients. When it comes to complex HRT decisions or complex medical background, that's only when a, a menopause specialist per se will be needed. And that will be minority of women. Yeah, so, I mean, I like the way you position that. Um, basically, providing other healthcare practitioners with, well, number one, just a mindset change that this isn't negative, right? Get rid of, break the negative connotations uh, and do all the things they can do to improve women's health. I mean, just as a, a sort of a side example, years ago when the HPV test, the DNA test for cervical cancer was launched, a lot of uh, gynecologists were saying, well, this is actually a negative because women come to see me once a year to have their pap smear. Now they don't need to. Well, the smart gynecologist said, well, I can use that opportunity 
to talk to them about cardiac health, um, talk about, you know, psychological health, well-being, all sorts of other things. And, you know, we just, we have to change with the times, right? Yes. That's all we have time for today, sadly. But please join us next week for part two with Vikram, where we'll be delving into treatments for menopause, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and estrogen deficiency. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, check out our archives for more episodes and don't forget to like us on social media and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and thank you for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.